You are listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from Western's Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. In this series, join me, Eric Morse, as we uncover the stories of our entrepreneurial legends. These Western founders have revolutionized industries, built recognizable brands, and added richness to lives across Canada and beyond. Discover their origins, their greatest moments, their deepest challenges, and what makes each of them tick. Welcome to the Legend Series. Those who can't do, teach. If you enjoy dispelling popular myths, then this episode is for you. MBA 64 Bob Norris was in his element when teaching in the classroom. After completing his doctorate at Harvard, Norris began a nine-year teaching career at the Ivy Business School. But in 1976, that world was upended when a private equity firm came knocking for his expertise to turn around some struggling companies. From airlines and soft drinks to building water slides, Norris eventually found his diamond in the rough in a little New Orleans-based mail-order business called the Bombay Company. The rest, as they say, is history. Bob, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. We're really fortunate to have Bob Norris with us as our guest on the Legends podcast. And Bob, somebody I, I've gotten to know around the university. So when I first moved to Ivy, Bob was coming back and teaching a, a class on entrepreneurial growth. And uh, it was great to get to know him kind of over time and, and know his story. And I'm, I'm really pleased to uh, have this chance to, to let other people know Bob's story and, and hear some of this. So Bob, thanks so much for being with us. You. Um, so when you were growing up, was, was entrepreneur something that was on your radar? Had you ever thought of uh, this kind of a career path? <laughs> Heck no. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was raised as an army brat in a military family. We talked a lot about things around the dinner table, but never about starting and growing businesses. Okay. So kind of a poster boy for people who don't start out thinking about being an entrepreneur, but through their experiences in life, end up becoming one. Okay. Well, fantastic. And, and you kind of came to entrepreneurship a little bit later in, in life. I did. Yeah. So you had uh, actually gone through university and, and came to Ivy as a faculty member here in the, the marketing department. Right, right. Uh, I was really uh, 38 before I got into a private company and ended up running some high growth companies. I guess before that, I was on the board of that company. But really, uh, I was in my late 30s before I, uh, I really got going. It's really interesting. So uh, tell me about your teaching. Uh, you know, what was it that led you to teaching to begin with? And what did you kind of take away from that maybe when you got into the private sector? Well, I got into teaching probably like a lot of people uh, under the influence of some very uh, persuasive professors. <laughs> uh, Layton and marketing and Andy Grindley, who taught quantitative uh, subjects. Uh, they both kind of took me under their wing and encouraged me. And I took a look at the life that they were leading. Um, I'd actually had teaching experience before. I taught, taught electrical engineering for a year at Royal Military College. Uh, ah. I knew I liked teaching, and it just seemed like a good thing to do. Uh, <laughs> I made that decision really at the end of the MBA program. Uh, and uh, going to Harvard for a doctorate or going anywhere for a doctorate, for that matter, was just a matter of, of getting a union pass, uh, which you needed to teach on a, on a career basis. Right. <laughs> hey, I just found something out. I didn't know you were a recovering engineer like myself. <laughs> I am. I'm an electrical engineer 
I I wouldn't want to do much more than plug in a socket right now. <laughs> it's been too long for me as well. I, I totally agree with you. Okay, so you've left academia, and, and in 1979, uh, you bought the rights to the Bombay Company. Can you give me a little bit of the history? How did that come about, and what, what was the thinking there? Well, you really have to back up a little bit, uh, Eric, to uh, 1976. I had been on the board as an outside director of a company called VentureTech. It was a private equity company. And at that time, uh, it was controlling about $200 million in venture assets. Okay. Over eight or nine companies. Okay. And two founders, one of whom was a friend of mine, uh, were really finding themselves pretty stretched. And so they showed up in my office at Ivy one day and basically offered me a job. <laughs> if I would come in as a vice president and, uh, and, and oversee two or three of the companies. Uh, I got three, in fact, but of course, I didn't get the cream of the crop because I was the third guy in. <laughs> um, about uh, three months after joining the, uh, the Venture Tech, um, I was overseeing an Arctic airline. Okay. The numbers didn't look quite right. Uh, and we sent in Coopers and Librand to do an audit. And what we found is that, uh, in fact, they were hiding. Uh, uh, we found a couple of hundred thousand dollars of wow. school expenses in the back drawer of the CFO and so forth. And I had to go in and, and fire the top four people. Uh, and of course, they looked at me and said, oh, well, who's going to run this? And I said, well, I'll run it till we get someone. But I ended up running an Arctic airline for a year and a half. Wow. Well, that's an education. <laughs> yeah, that was a real education. And, and really, for my time in venture tech, what I found was that, that I ended up doing a lot of that kind of thing. I was in the soft drink business. Uh, I was in a geophysical mapping uh, and uh, I built water slides in, uh, uh, I was in Japanese banks, two French banks, uh, a big government agency called Canada Development Corporation. And uh, really, my incentives were there, but they weren't very big. And I learned a lot in that time about how to grow businesses. Yeah. So I started looking, uh, in, really, in uh, late 1978, or something I might do on my own, a year to find it. Okay, so the entrepreneurial bug was uh, kind of bit you at that point as you were running some I, of these I, It not only bit me, it swallowed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you found a really interesting one because you jumped and you did it with your partner. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I'd known Alex, my wife, for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, she uh, actually was living in Amsterdam and I was in Toronto when I made the decision. But a few months after uh, we got started, she moved out to Toronto. And while we never intended to work together, uh, our skills are very complementary and it worked out perfectly. And we did it for 17, 16, 17 years. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. And, and so you bought the rights to the Bombay Company, which I think was mostly mail order and mostly in the States at the time. And, and that's I right. think you opened up... At, it's certainly the first bricks and mortar in Canada, maybe anywhere, I, I don't recall. Yeah, um, what happened basically was a classmate of mine at Ivy had invested in the mail order business out of New Orleans. Okay. And uh, I had had uh, dinner with him one time and in Bermuda, and uh, he told me about this. He said, you ought to go see this guy. So I went into New Orleans a couple of times. Uh, the last 
first of which was a long liquid lunch at <laughs> Palace in uh, New Orleans, about 11 hours, I think. <laughs> on the back of a napkin, uh, we signed an agreement where I got the Canadian rights to Bombay Company for a dollar. Promised to hire his mother if we opened a store. His mother was living in in uh, uh, Toronto. <laughs> was American, and That's we hired great. her. Bonnie was her name, and she was a great salesperson. Uh, couldn't keep track of the invoices, but she did a great job. And uh, so that's how I got uh, basically ended up with the rights. Uh, and yes, uh, there was by that time one store in suburban New Orleans, Uptown Square, but it was nothing like the kind of store that we opened, which was in Eaton Center. That store in April of 1980. April of 1980 in the Eaton Center. And, and that was a bit of an ordeal. And can you take me through what, what it was like signing that lease and, and getting something going in the Eaton Center? Well, you know, sometimes you're just lucky. <laughs> I walked, they at that time had just completed the South Wing of the Eaton Center, the one, uh, the South Wing. And yeah. basically, uh, there were one or two spots left. That was all. And I walked okay. in to a fellow named Ernie Booth. Uh, Ernie was the vice president of leasing for Cadillac Fairview. I walked in his office and sort of said, I'm Bob Norris and I'd like a store. <laughs> well, I know that if you if you do that today, uh, I, I knew then too. Uh, you, you don't get anywhere. I mean, you, it, but uh, Ernie Booth happened actually to have a soft spot, and he wanted somewhere in Eaton Center to say that he was nurturing a, a startup of some kind, oh, and great. gave us a store. Okay, and he not only gave us a store, but he did not put the blocks to us on the lease. Um, I later got to know the people at Radio Shack, and we actually had a better lease than Radio Shack. Wow. Which was kind of interesting, because he really, uh, when, when you're kind of green in the gills like that, a landlord can absolutely uh, tie you up in knots. And he didn't do that at all. And so uh, we, uh, we were able to open that store, uh, and it took off right away. Uh, if we had problems, it was th there was too much volume. <laughs> and so uh, the store takes off right away. I remember uh, you telling me a little bit about uh, it, it was kind of the stuff on the walls that uh, started oh, yeah. bringing people in. How did, how did that happen? Well, that was almost an accident. Um, initially, we had a woman named Ruth Pelly doing some accessorizing for us because she knew all the contacts locally. And we put a few frame pieces of just frame prints around the store to give it the, the uh, uh, if you like, the, the, the look of a home. And one day, Ruth Pelly uh, came in, and she took all of those prints and put them on one wall. Hmm. All of a sudden, they were masked. There was a critical mass there, and they just started selling like hotcakes. But later on, when we had a lot of stores, um, uh, prints and mirrors, which we called wall decor, we're making up almost 20% of our sales, and we were selling a million pieces a year. Wow, that's amazing. Just tells you, there it was right under our nose, and almost uh, by accident. Uh, well, we learned something about uh, making a statement to your customer about what kind of a business you're in. <laughs> yeah. I got the message. We were in that business. 
Yeah. And you were flexible enough and obviously looking for learning, uh, you know, often enough that you were able to capitalize on it. Uh, so, Bob, that kind of starts the growth. I mean, you've got a store in the Eaton Center, which has got to be the best commercial space in all of Canada at the time. And, and you're, things are really going fast. As you said, the problem may be that you have too much volume. So now yeah. you decide you're going to start opening new stores. Uh, that, you know, that may be the biggest risk, right? Can you take me through when you decided to grow and make this? You know, well, something? the nice thing about having a store in the Eaton Center was that everybody, all the other developers saw it. So uh, more or less over the next year or so, uh, we had kind of people dropping in from uh, Sherway Gardens, from uh, Oakville, from Bayview Village, uh, big uh, locations in Toronto. Our problem at that point was capital. Uh, in that day and age, you even needed money to open a letter of credit and you had to open letters of credit to buy merchandise overseas. Right. Over time, that went away, but that was it for now. It came out of your bank line. Meanwhile, in the U.S., I have to back up a minute here. Uh, the U.S. operator in, in uh, running the mail order business uh, never made money. Okay. He ended up selling out to a, a, a shell company on the American Stock Exchange called Tandy Brands. It was oh, yeah. a company with a lot of cash and not much uh, businesses to make it run. And they invested in our company sooner than I would have liked, to be honest, but okay. left us with enough incentive that here I am living in Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> there you go. Well done. And with their money, we were able to open a group of, uh, I think, five or six stores um, in uh, Bayview Village was the next, Sherway Gardens, Scarborough Town Center. There was a street store in Oakville. Um, we hadn't been able to work a deal with the landlord, and we did very well with that. Um, and uh, over a period from then to 1983, late 80, by late 83, we had 12 stores. Wow. We rolled out. We did not uh, sort of spread them all over the place. So uh, okay. they were in Toronto, then in Ottawa, then there was one in Kingston. And, and only toward the end did we... Uh, did we open up two or three stores in Western Canada? And that, that certainly helped, I'm sure, with distribution and uh, yeah. And well, and supervision and everything else. Uh, it's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make, you know, is to spread themselves over too much geography. They don't roll out uh, their business in a way that makes them lets them control their costs. So you're, uh, you're spread across Canada at this point and, and things are going really well. Um, but now we're really headed for huge growth. So t take me through, how do we go from that to 100 stores or 400 plus stores across North America? Well, in uh, late 1983, the people who had bought the mail order business in, Toronto, in, in the U.S. had started opening stores and they weren't doing a very good job of it. Okay. We had a dozen stores and every one of them was making money, good money. Uh, and we kind of knew, uh, Alex and I, that, uh, that we were probably going to hear from them one of these days. <laughs> but uh, we pretty well decided that, uh, well, they're in Fort Worth, Texas, and we live in Toronto. We would never move to Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> Famous so, last words. <laughs> sure as hell, yeah. The phone call comes in December. They've had a lousy Christmas season. And they asked if they could come up to Toronto and uh, talk with us. Uh, and uh, 
And suddenly, you know, we realized there's this big U.S. market waiting to be had. And we thought we knew how to do it. And the idea that it would go to someone else was just a killer. By, uh, by the first week of January, uh, we were on our, we had a guy who could take over the Canadian operation under our wing, and we both moved to Fort Worth, Texas. And the first thing I did was close about a dozen stores. Oh, wow. Opened. Um, and, and in the first year there, we only opened three stores. Okay. But we got the model right, and we fixed the, uh, the problems they had with inventory and with the stores that they had opened that were um, in the wrong places, in the wrong setup. Sure. So you've got Tandy now as a, a very you know, proximate partner, I guess, as you start to expand in the U.S., and things start to hit a pace uh, in terms of growth. Yeah, Eric, and it, it was actually Tandy Brands, which wasn't the Radio Shack Tandy. Oh, okay. Sorry. To make that clear, it was a yeah. sort of a separate company, rather sleepy on the uh, American Stock Exchange, um, but uh, traded every third Wednesday, I think. Uh, <laughs> Okay. But um, after the first store, we opened 12 the next year. We opened 35 the next year. And, uh, and we were on a roll. And, and every time we learn more and more about how to open a store and how to open multiple stores. And we eventually reached a point where, counting some conversions we were doing to larger stores, we had two years in a row where we opened 100 stores. Wow. Which, by the way, was too many. Yeah, so every every third day there's a new store. That's uh, that's kind of Starbucks level growth. What does that do to the business? It does two things. It makes uh, we're a public company by that point in time on the New York Stock Exchange, and it makes the stock market very excited. I bet it does. <laughs> so we were carrying a, a 50 PE multiple, I think, for at least almost a year, and uh, and that's very hard to live up to. Yes, uh, it is. We were not really a tech company. We were a retail company. And that's one thing. The big problem it creates is for the people that are working for you. Retail is people intensive, hiring people at a great rate. And you almost reach the point, even though you put in training programs and everything else, you can't move quickly enough. And you find that the person you hired yesterday is telling the person you hired today how the company runs and what to do. And that person, of course, doesn't really know. That's uh, hard on culture, isn't it? Yeah, it's very hard on culture. And uh, and we grew too fast, very simply. All right. Well, before we get to that, I'm going to say 93, 94 was kind of the year of Bob Norse. Uh, you, yep. you had 400 stores. You were Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, you know, lots of lots to live up to uh, in terms of growth and everything else. That had, has to be just a little bit more pressure, I, I would assume. I don't know if you feel pressure. Uh, it's not ultimately a good thing, you know. <laughs> Everybody uh, thinks you can do no wrong. And quite right. frankly, most of the time, it seems like you can't. Everything you're touching is turning to gold. Right. But everybody's praising you and uh, nobody's really talking to you other than, in my case, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, realistically, about uh, what's happening. And yeah. uh, it is a, it, it's a great ride. There's no question about it. You're being sure. asked by all of the big brokerage houses, not only to attend their conferences and speak, but to go with them to Europe and, and meet with their major clients and uh, wow. all sorts of bells and whistles. 
and it's hard. You, it, it really puffs your ego and, and you really shouldn't let it do that. Well, I think it's hard. I, Inc. said you were running America's hottest company at one point in time, I said. Yeah, yeah. yeah they did. They and, did. I, you know, it's, it's funny, Bob. I, I know uh, you've done some work with entrepreneurs here in Canada and high growth companies. And one of the things I always laugh at when you tell them is, hey, if you ever reach a multiple of 50, yeah. <laughs> time to sell. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, I'm all for that. I'm actually <laughs> big about... Uh, uh, take some money off the table on the way, whether it's 50 or not. <laughs> you know, yeah. when, the, when the times are so good, just aren't going to last that way forever. They may not turn bad, but they're not going to be that good forever. And ultimately, as all things do, it did turn down, uh, go down the other direction, and, and you parted ways with the company. Uh, when you look back, what were some of the, you know, it was a successful run no matter how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, built an amazing business, great culture, great really uh, merchandising that that hadn't been seen before. You, you you really did a lot in the industry. What are some of the major lessons maybe that you took away from from that whole ride? You know, up as high and and even down down some of the lows. We certainly learned the importance of a business model. I mean, uh, perhaps because of my Ivy background and teaching and everything else. From the very beginning, I kind of knew what our formula was for making money, where the key drivers were and what expenses most needed to be controlled and what you had to build into fixed commitments like leases. And time and again, in working with other entrepreneurs or doing other things myself, what I've seen is that a lot of people don't have a clear idea of their business model. It's a fuzzy idea and it doesn't really nail uh, what drives revenue and what drives control of your expenses. And so it's to be sure, business models need to be tweaked as you grow and as circumstances change. But you have to know what your model is in the first place in order to tweak it. Uh, sure. and, uh, in, in throughout history, even in some very big instances, there have been people who demonstrate they don't do that. That's one of the most important things. Yeah, if you don't know where what drives revenue, how do you leverage, you know, and move forward? Yeah. So. And some of the other things I think I probably talked about just because they keep surfacing for me, you know, don't outgrow the ability of your people to grow. Uh, that's not, I'm not the only person who's done that. And we didn't do it disastrously so, but it was, we certainly did it. Bury your ego. You know, when you're successful, everybody uh, tells you how good you are. Right. And uh, you're not really that good. <laughs> uh, and and uh, take some money off the table on the way up. You'll be glad you did. Uh, we took some off. We didn't take as much with hindsight as I would have liked. But there sure. again, it was enough to live a comfortable life and do a lot of other things in life. Great advice, Bob. And I think tried and true. You know, coming through a pandemic, uh, you've, you've been through some tough times as well and economic cycles while you were running Bombay Company. A anything that you would share with uh, entrepreneurs that, that are struggling right now to uh, come out of the pandemic in a, in a positive way? Yeah, you really just have to stick at it. When I mean, we've had, I can talk about a couple of them if you like. We sure. had points along the way where it wasn't clear we were going to make it or not make it. Yeah. Uh, we had points in the early days 
where we didn't know if we were going to make a payroll next week. Right. On three or four days notice, we had to organize a warehouse sale to generate some cash to make the payroll. Later on, uh, we had, of course, in our early years, used an agent to source for us in Asia, primarily in Taiwan in the beginning. Um, but you reach a point where that's no longer cost effective, where you pay him a percentage, but you could operate your own office much cheaper. And uh, those transitions are uh, classics in Asia. They usually go wrong, and, and ours certainly was difficult too. Okay. Uh, made that transition, uh, all, all of a sudden, uh, the agent just dropped us immediately. And we had to put a team of people on a plane to Taiwan and set up a sourcing office in an environment that we really didn't know all that well. Right. Uh, now, both of those are circumstances where you just do what you got to do. And if you're passionate about your business, you will probably work harder and longer than you ever thought you could. But yeah. it takes. You don't get over those hurdles without that kind of an effort. And I think that, that I don't know many businesses that have succeeded that haven't confronted situations like that. The private equity company I worked for, VentureTech, uh, before I had ever worked there, uh, they'd invested in a lacrosse factory down in Cornwall. And they ended up with something like 20 lacrosse uh, factory workers all carrying lacrosse sticks in their offices. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> you know, uh, threatening uh, all sorts of things. So you just you just have to dig right in and do, and, and you probably will, but if you haven't got the metal, if you like, to be an entrepreneur, then you probably back down or look for an easier solution and it never works. I think that's such great advice for our aspiring entrepreneurs is that, you know, find something you're passionate about because things are going to go bad and you're going to have to really dig deep to get through those times. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, let's see. What, what one thing, I'm going to make you really narrow it down. What one thing do you wish you would have learned in school, perhaps, that, that would have helped you in your entrepreneurial career that, that you had to kind of learn the hard way? <laughs> Well, let me think about that. The thing I learned the hard way was the value of experience. Oh, interesting. I okay. came out of um, university into private equity just because of the, the things you learn at Ivy and the way you approach things. I knew how to define problems. I knew how to structure solutions for them. Conceptually, I could handle any problem. Yeah. But I was working in private equity with people who work very quickly. Okay. Uh, you know, and they could see problems, move on them and act more quickly than I can just because they had a reservoir of experience that I didn't have. It's the other side that you really have to get. The conceptual thing in its own right is important and it served me well because not a lot of people get that the way I got it by teaching. Mm -hmm. Same time, um, I really, uh, I made some mistakes coming out. Maybe other people wouldn't have made those mistakes. I don't know. Um, but I bought a company uh, too, uh, too easily without enough diligence and research on what it was. <laughs> and I sort of looked at what we were being told like a case study, you know? Right, sure. But the problem is real world case studies, 
don't always tell you the whole story, particularly yeah. if someone's trying to sell you something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting. So if you were, you know, to put your teaching hat back on, what what maybe could we be teaching our students better than we are today? Yeah, I don't know that one uh, very well, Eric. I, I thought about, I, I knew you might ask that question. And uh, I don't know awfully well what you're teaching. What I do know is that, uh, uh, you know, your quantum shift program works with real entrepreneurs, yeah. people who are aspiring to be it. Right. Sell that thing out plus plus every with a waiting list every year. So you must be doing a lot of things right. <laughs> well, thanks, Bob. That that's uh, very important. Um, I think that uh, that's that's as good as I can judge that, really. Uh, but I think you're probably doing a pretty good job. And bear in mind that when I went through the MBA program, uh, there were no courses in entrepreneurship, no program, no institute, none of these things. And so uh, I almost had to wait quite a long time before I got exposed and sensitive to some of those things. Yeah. I do feel that sometimes people who aspire to be entrepreneurs um, are having trouble finding an idea. Sure. And you don't find an idea in a white walled room, uh, you know, sitting there and staring. Yeah. Um, and what I would say to them is don't be discouraged, but probably you might want to consider getting some experience in an industry or a sector of an industry somewhere mm -hmm. to learn how that industry works, what are the important variables, what are the unimportant things, and where there are opportunities to make the industry better. Yeah. And uh, that will make you a lot, make it a lot easier for you not only to find an idea, but to develop an idea more successfully. So if you haven't got an idea and have to go to work for a few years somewhere else with that in the back of your mind all the time, that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. It's better than starting out with some idea that you've just sort of dreamt up at night and, uh, and really hasn't got very big potential. Entrepreneurs should be looking for businesses that have decent potential. Yeah. Not, yeah. you know, not local laundry services. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, how do we change the world uh, in, a, in a way for the better, right? And we yep. should be thinking at that level. Uh, you know, Bob, uh, my time here at Ivy has been uh, wonderful. And one of the things that, that, that I do cherish is having the opportunity to, uh, to watch you teach and to, to learn from you over the years. Uh, the way you teach business model, as you kind of did in this session uh, a little bit, or you touched on it, uh, was really great. I, I loved sitting through watching you teach that to, you know, successful entrepreneurs and having all of them go, wait a minute, do I really know what my levers are? And boy, it really made me think about how do I present that to others and do a better job of helping entrepreneurs with that. So you've had a great impact on me. And my last question for you was, you know, was there something while you were at Ivy uh, as a faculty member um, when you, your first time or when you came back even that, that you remember and will uh, take with you? Well, I think um, despite the fact that, that I had a wonderful time initially there um, in, in the marketing group when I first taught there uh, and, and teaching elsewhere as well, um, 
I think my fondest moments are those that happened when I came back. I had done 16 years of Bombay when I'd been involved in some other startups, uh, both myself and and as an investor, um, that I could go into a classroom and know in my heart what I thought was important and and be able to teach that and teach with confidence that I was teaching the right thing and find ways to express it. I will say, by the way, that when I went back to teaching, I came to understand in some ways that I never had before why I'd done some of the things I did when I was actually an entrepreneur. Ah, Okay. Uh, You learn a lot from teaching uh, about your students, but about yourself. That whole experience for me, and I think it was uh, 11 or 12 years in total counting quantum shift, Mm -hmm. uh, was a... uh, a very rewarding experience for me because I was kind of giving back. But at the same time, I was by training a teacher, you know, yep. and, and I, I sometimes think that it would, it's harder for businessmen to come into teaching than for teachers to go into business. <laughs> you know, teaching is a skill set in yeah. its own right. And, uh, and you really have to work at that. Well, Bob, thanks. Thanks so much for today. I know there's uh, several decades worth of students out there and, and certainly those uh, that I got to know when you came back uh, that, that benefited tremendously from, from your teaching and, and from your experience. Uh, as you mentioned, that's so hard to come by. So thanks so much for that. And, and thanks for today. I, it was great. to. And it's uh, so nice to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you too, Bob. I, I okay. hope we'll have a chance to in person in the near future. Okay, then, Eric, take care. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.